Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. This is episode 50. I can hardly believe that in just a couple of months I've gone from my first podcast to halfway to my pre-crime con goal of 100 episodes. Thank you for all the love and support you've shown me over the last two months. And as this is another benchmark episode, we will once again go across the pond and cover a case that originates outside the United States. I do keep a running tally of the downloads per country, and while Australia is in the lead right now and Ireland is a close second, the United Kingdom isn't far behind. So this episode and episode 51 will cover a unique case out of England that occurred in 2010. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Finally, if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. And any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. Also, for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Around 122 AD, a massive construction project began in northern England. The Roman Emperor Hadrian had ordered his engineers to build a massive wall between the Roman Empire lands of South Britain and the barbaric lands to the north. The impressively large Roman Empire was stretched thin, and Hadrian lacked the manpower to conquer and hold the remainder of the island nation. A plan for a 73-mile-long, 12-foot-high, and 10-foot-deep wall of stone was drawn up. The wall would run from the North Sea on the east to the Irish Sea on the west. Guard towers were erected at intervals of every 130 mile, giving the wall around 250 manned turrets and gates that allowed for trade and commerce but prevented large raiding parties from traveling into the empire. The wall stood as a symbol of Rome's engineering and military strength, and some sections may have even been plastered and whitewashed so it could be seen from miles away. During the peak of its operation, the wall was manned by an estimated 10,000 Roman auxiliary soldiers, likely mostly southern Britons that were paid to serve in the Roman military. The wall stood for roughly 400 years, and while different emperors tried to build another wall further north, all attempts to colonize that area failed and they always fell back to Hadrian's Wall. The fall of the Roman Empire saw an end to the wall's use as a defensive fortification. Much of the wall was dismantled by farmers and homeowners who used the stones for their own smaller walls or structures. However, most of the lower footings of the wall still exist, and in 1987 the entire wall was named a World Heritage Site. In March of 2010, 500 beacons were lit along the length of the wall to celebrate the 1600th anniversary of the end of Roman rule in Britain. A few months later, an area just south of the wall would not be celebrating. They would be under siege for roughly two hours in a shooting rampage that would result in the deaths of 13 people and serious injuries to 11 more. This is the story of the Cumbria shooting spree. Now, before I get into the actual story, 
I originally had this planned as a single episode, but I actually came across a public post incident uh, report that was done. It was about 90 pages long by the uh, British law enforcement uh, agency, and they broke it down so well, uh, both the actual crime itself and then all the stuff around the crime, that by the time I got done writing out just the narrative portion of this alone, I was over 4,000 words into it. And I, I try to aim for 3,000 if I'm going to be doing some analyzing, which I probably will do a little bit today. But with 4,000 plus a lot of analyzing, I realized it would probably be a rather lengthy uh, single episode and decided it would be better to try to just focus on the story and then in episode 51, I'll break down a lot of the stuff from the report. Uh, we'll break down some of the reasons why we believe the shooter did what he did. And I'll offer up some of my insights just with uh, American law enforcement and how it compares to uh, UK's law enforcement. Because I've always been fascinated with law enforcement in other countries. Uh, I actually have a good friend who's a German uh, I'm sorry, member of the German police. I have a good friend who's a member of the Australian Federal Police. So I do have some understandings how some other countries police. And actually, I've had conversations with both of them in regards to the differences between American law enforcement and other countries. So being able to research this and see how the response kind of grew to this incident and compare it to how this the response and the the stuff that would have happened in the uh, if this had happened in America it's that's a lot of the stuff I'm going to get to in the next episode so again I'm going to focus mainly on the story I may offer a few asides during the story if I feel like it needs a little more clarification but for the most part I'll break it all down in episode 51 so we'll get into the story now Cumbria is a county in northwest England that borders southwest Scotland. It's a beautiful landscape filled with jagged rock peaks and many dark water lakes. The Lake District National Park takes up a large portion of the center of the county and is visited by almost 16 million people every year. The county is second largest in area but eighth smallest in population and it's known for its rural nature and quiet backcountry. But on June 2nd, 2010, that serene atmosphere would give way to chaos and grief as a man set out on a mission to cause as much carnage as he could in this peaceful landscape. The incident actually begins around 5 p.m. on June 1st. A 52-year-old man named Derek Bird drives to a friend's house in Whitehaven. These two are scuba diving buddies, and Derek gives him all of his scuba gear, stating, you'll get more use from it than I will. Two hours later, he stopped at a friend's house and they settle down to watch a movie. They pick Exit Wounds with Steven Seagal. It's a violence-filled film about police corruption, and during the movie, Derek tells his friend that he is under investigation by the Inland Revenue Service for Tax Crimes, and he's afraid he will go to jail. So I'll step aside real quick here. Uh, the giving away of the gear is something that should bring red flags 
we talk about it a lot in the law enforcement community. You know, when somebody is suicidal, they'll often give away some of their prized possessions because they want somebody to have them and they, they want to feel that little bit of good they have um, of giving that item away to somebody else. And so I, I don't know why this buddy in Whitehaven wouldn't have asked more questions about giving away scuba gear. I, I have uh, a bit of, of uh, the scuba gear at my place and it's pretty expensive stuff. So giving it away, again, should have been a red flag. And this Inland Revenue Service, I actually saw it described in a different, using a different terminology. Um, and my guess is that it's the same thing. And, and if we're going to compare it to the United States, it would be like our IRS. And so he's watching this violent movie with his buddy. He's given away some of his stuff. So things are definitely starting to go down. And that's why I said this actually begins on the day before. His friend would later tell police that Derek was in crisis mode about taxes. And although a lot of it seemed to stem from his father's will, it may have also been failure to pay taxes for a taxi service he ran for a decade and a half. Derek's friend tried to talk him out of doing anything crazy, and Derek leaves around midnight and promised to call his friend the next day. On Wednesday, June 2nd, sometime before 5.30 a.m., Derek Bird drove to his twin brother David's house in the small town of Lamplug and shot him 11 times, killing him. The police would not be notified about this killing until around 11 a.m. when co-workers called the report that David hadn't shown up for work. Derek's gun that he used held 11 bullets at the time, which meant he fired all 11 rounds into his brother. Around 5.30 a.m., Derek is seen by a witness driving his car in the small town of Frisington, which has a population around 3,600 people. CCTV footage would later confirm that Derek Bird drove his car down a single-track road at this time, and he parked his vehicle by the house belonging to his lawyer-slash-solicitor, Kevin Commons. And they refer to it, of course, in the report as solicitor. For those of us in the U.S., that's it's a lawyer. I'm sure many of you knew that, but I always want to make sure I'm as detailed as possible, especially when it comes to these international crimes, so somebody's not left scratching their head or having to look it up, uh, what I'm talking about. A neighbor who knew Derek had walked past him as he slowly drove down the road and said hello and asked how he was doing, but Derek just stared ahead as he ignored the kind welcome. And this was actually a former classmate of Derek. They had gone to school together, so she knew who he was. And so she definitely took note of the fact that he just kept driving and stared ahead as if she wasn't there. And around 10 a.m., Kevin Commons tried to leave his house, driving his white van down his driveway. And Derek had blocked off the end of the driveway with his car. And when I say his car, it's actually going to be a taxi. And that's going to come into play a lot here. It's a like a silver bluish. It doesn't look like a taxi like you would see in America with you know, yellow taxi or even like the London black taxis. This is just a kind of ordinary gray 
bluish silver kind of mix um, sedan. However, it's got the words taxi written on it in yellow on the door. So he's operating a taxi. And remember, this is a, a very tourist popular area of England with this national park nearby. So a lot of tourists that are going to be traveling through the area likely need a taxi ride from one spot to the other. So it's a pretty lucrative business for the taxi drivers, but they drive their own vehicles. They're not part of a company. He's independent. So he blocks Kevin Commons in with his, his taxi at the end of the driveway. And Derek is going to get out of his car and points a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun at Kevin. And Kevin was in his vehicle, and Derek shot twice into the windshield of the vehicle, and one of the shotgun blasts hits Kevin in the shoulder. Kevin exits his vehicle and runs back up his driveway before Derek catches up to him and shoots him twice in the head with a 22 caliber rifle, which kills Kevin. This killing is witnessed by a neighbor, and she would first discuss the matter with, with her other neighbors and then calls 999, which is the UK's version of 911, to alert the police. And she mistook the 22 caliber rifle for an air rifle, despite hearing the report of the shotgun shots before. However, gun violence is pretty rare in England in general, and especially in this part of England, this quiet area of England. So she was pretty shaken, and the dispatcher had a hard time getting information from her, which is also a common problem during critical incidents. And the misidentification of the weapon used also created a delay in getting more armed officers into the area, as they weren't at first certain somebody had been shot and killed. And this is, again... If, if you read the actual traffic between the dispatcher and this neighbor who witnesses the killing, she doesn't really quite know what's going on. She's saying, she looked out her window and saw a man chasing another man, and then she says she thinks that they were shooting each other with air rifles. And so police have a very different picture in their mind of what's going on and the dispatcher has a very different picture in mind than what is actually going on and this is going to get even more convoluted because i mentioned derek was driving this silvery blue they call it a picasso sedan with the words taxi in yellow on the side of the car but somehow information was relayed that the suspect was in a yellow taxi which also created confusion when they're trying to locate the vehicle so as I said, the radio traffic came out as two men shooting at each other with air rifles, one in a white van and the other in a yellow taxi that had since left the scene. However, in reality, Kevin Commons, the driver of the white van, had been shot and killed by a much more lethal weapon by a man driving a completely different color vehicle. And the dispatcher would even call back the witness. And while she was on the phone with the witness, it, there's commentary in there like, that another neighbor was actually out with Kevin and was yelling to the neighbor, tell them we need an ambulance, this guy's seriously injured. And she mentioned something about a shotgun, and the dispatcher jumps all over her, trying to say, like, well, was it a shotgun or was it an air rifle? Because you said air rifle last time. And so she goes back to, well, I think it was an air rifle. So, again, another missed opportunity for the police to really 
get a grasp of what's going on early on here. And again, they don't know that Derek's brother has been shot and killed at this point either. So they have what they think is maybe two idiots shooting each other with air rifles. And in reality, this is the second murder that Derek has committed. And while emergency services tried to ascertain exactly what had happened, Derek drove to a friend's residence to try and retrieve a shotgun he had given to the friend on a previous evening to hold on to. And I read it two different ways. The actual police report, I think, said something to the effect that his friend wasn't there and this gun had been locked up in a safe, so he didn't have access to it. But then I also read that the friend answered the door but wouldn't give him the shotgun. And what Derek had done is actually with the shotgun that he had already used to shoot Kevin in the shoulder and shoot the van twice, this was a legally owned shotgun by Derek. He actually had a, a certificate to, to own this shotgun. And up until the point that he sawed off the barrel, there was nothing illegal about it however he did saw off the barrel and for those of you that don't know like a sawed off shotgun would be a great weapon to use if you were inside of a building and you had to clear rooms filled with people because it's from close distance it's pretty devastating but once you get any further distance out if you're using any type of pellet or shot this the shorter the barrel the further the spread of those rounds so as i said close in a short barrel is great because you don't need those pellets to stay in a very tight pattern for long because you're going to be shooting somebody close to you whereas in if you have the long barrel the normal barrel on the shotgun those pellets stay compact inside the barrel for longer so when they come out of the gun it takes a little longer for them to spread out so it's more accurate and it's possible that Derek didn't understand how this would sawing off the barrel would negatively affect the accuracy of the shotgun and the shotgun he had I'm assuming is either he had three shotguns that he had access to he owned one was an over what called was called an over under so there's a, a barrel on the top a barrel on the bottom and you put in two rounds one on top one on bottom and you can pull the trigger twice and fire both of them and then there's he had a side-by-side -side shotgun so you usually breach it load it so that the uh, end of the barrels are where you put the shotgun shells in towards you flip open and you can take out the two shells that you just fired and put in two new shotgun shells and then there's pump action and semi-automatic shotguns and it sounds like based on the description of this shotgun that he gave to a friend that the shotgun he was trying to pick up was a semi-automatic shotgun and this is a much more modern shotgun it's possible that he realized that this, this other shotgun was going to be much more effective at killing people than the, the one that he sawed off, so he went to go get it. However, what I didn't find in the reading is why they believe he gave the friend the shotgun in the first place, because he gave it to the friend the night before. So if he was planning this killing spree, why would he give up his most deadly weapon? But uh, regardless, 
he's now driving around with still has his sawed off shotgun and he's still got his 22 caliber rifle and he then r- drives into downtown Whitehaven and he calls a fellow taxi driver named Darren Rucastle over to his vehicle and Derek had long-standing issues with Darren foremost Darren had openly bragged about damaging the tires on Derek's ta- taxi in the past and Derek was also under the belief that Darren openly poached taxi fares from him on a regular basis. So when Darren walks up to Derek's car, he shoots him twice at close range with a rifle, and the bullets would hit Darren in the lower face and chest. These shots would ultimately be fatal, and Derek had just committed the third murder of this rampage. And shortly after shooting Darren Rucastle, Derek pulled his taxi up next to Donald Reed, another taxi driver. Derek shot Donald once in the back and drove off. He then circled around to take more shots at Donald, but his next two shots missed. Derek left the scene to find another target and located yet another taxi driver named Paul Wilson. Paul, unaware that Derek was the man causing all the carnage around town, ran over to Derek's car when he was summoned. Once Paul was close enough, Derek shot him in the face with a shotgun, severely wounding him. And... We have to realize that this probably isn't all happening in view of one another. Uh, So these other taxi drivers that he's finding to shoot and call over to his vehicle, it'd be if you were hearing something going on that wasn't quite right, and then somebody that you knew motioned for you to come over to the car as if they're going to either tell you something or ask you something, nine times out of ten, you're not going to think twice about it. You're going to go over there and, and... because you know that person so these guys were all kind of tricked into making themselves easy victims for uh, Derek shooting spree because they know the guy they know his car his taxi is going to stick out and they at least trusted him enough to walk over there and it ultimately you know cost one of them their lives and, and two are now injured and unarmed officers in the area had been alerted to the shootings by a man named Paul Goodwin. He had seen Derek shoot the other taxi drivers in Whitehaven and informed the officer of Derek's identity and actions. One of the officers got into, into Paul's personal vehicle so Paul could drive him to the scene of the shootings. They located Derek's car and a police van started following, likely being directed by the officer in Paul's car. As the police van was following Derek, he took a shot at a passing taxi and wounded the driver, Terry Kennedy, and his passenger, Emma Percival. Derek stopped his taxi and began to turn around, but his way was now blocked by Terry's taxi and the police van. He stopped his car and aimed his gun at the unarmed officers, and they went for cover under the dashboard of the van. But instead of firing at the officers, he took the chance to flee the area and his plan worked as the officers were now far behind Derek's car and the van could not accelerate fast enough and they lost sight of him. Paul Wilson, one of the taxi drivers that was injured but not killed by Derek, was also able to identify the shooter for police. Officers in Whitehaven and surrounding towns issued stay-indoor warnings to the residents, and armed officers from the Civil Nuclear Constabulary, a force responsible for guarding England's nuclear power plants, joined Cumbria officers in the search for Derek Bird. Several vehicles with armed police officers converged on the area and began looking for Derek, but he had taken to smaller roads in the area to avoid being seen. 
and this is going to be one of the big differences between policing in America and, and policing in the UK and other countries in the world is that there aren't a lot of armed police officers at any given time in the UK. There are some, and we'll talk about them, and we mentioned that some of them uh, in the area are going to be armed. And there's several others that are trained to use firearms, but are not allowed to carry them in their vehicle because there's only so many armed vehicles allowed in a certain area at any given time. And we'll discuss some of that here later, but these officers that are in this van, this officer that jumped into Paul Wilson, as I said, they're all unarmed officers. So all they're able to really do is follow Derek as he travels you know, through town and he's able to get away. Mentioned this van is not, doesn't have a whole lot of acceleration. One thing I, I would tell people and they didn't realize is that the police cars that I started my shift with, the Crown Victorias, were not great pursuit or, or acceleration vehicles either. They had a nice engine in them and they were very big, but they were not fast. And there's many, many times that in pursuits, vehicles could get away from us while we were in the Crown Vicks just because they had better acceleration uh, than we did. So it doesn't surprise me that this van doesn't have enough acceleration to catch up to uh, Derek's vehicle. And as a result, they're gonna lose sight of him pretty quickly. And Derek made his way south along the coast and began hunting random victims. And I say that because so far he had focused his rage on his brother, his lawyer, and other taxi drivers. And now he would be hunting people he didn't know and had no affiliation with. A woman named Jacqueline Williams was out walking her dog near the town of Ergamont when Derek pulled up alongside her and he tried to shoot her. He missed and she was able to run away and avoid being shot. He then pulled into the town of Ergamont and found a woman named Susan Hughes walking home from shopping. He stopped alongside her and shot her in the chest and abdomen with the shotgun. As he had done with Kevin Commons, he switched to his rifle and walked up to execute her. She fought back and after a brief struggle, Derek was able to fatally shoot her in the head. Derek then drove to the town of Bridge End and fired the shotgun at a pedestrian headed the opposite way. Kenneth Fishburne received fatal wounds to his chest and head. Shortly after, Derek called a man named Leslie Hunter over to his taxi, and when Leslie was close, Derek shot him in the face at close range. Leslie turned away after taking the blast and was shot a second time in the back. The wounds would somehow not be fatal, and Leslie survived the shooting. And again, I mentioned his fellow taxi drivers were not afraid to walk up to the car because they didn't know he was involved in any of this stuff and now we're talking about random people and you know he's a taxi driver somewhat regular looking guy and people might have even known him in the area to a certain degree and his trick to get people to come over the car as some of the survivors would say is that he would ask them either for time or directions and when they came up to the passenger side of the vehicle, he would shoot them. So a lot of these people are getting fatal wounds to the chest and the head because they're literally leaning into the car where Derek is waiting with this shotgun to, to shoot them. 
and it was now around 55 minutes. At this time, roughly an hour had passed since the murder of Kevin Commons. Police had identified the suspect, and they attempted to have a police negotiator contact Derek to discuss the situation and try to put an end to the shooting spree. But Derek had not brought his phone with him, so police had no way to contact him. Continuing south along the coast, Derek arrived in Thornhill and tried to shoot teenager Ashley Glaster with a shotgun. He stopped alongside her and called her over, but when she ducked her head into the passenger side window, she saw the shotgun and ducked just before Derek pulled the trigger. The shot missed her completely, and she ran and was able to avoid a second shot from Derek. Undeterred, Derek continued driving through the town of Carlton and into the village of Wheaton. As I mentioned, his tactic thus far had been to call out to people and ask them the time. And as I mentioned, he's driving a taxi, so people likely would have let their guard down and walked closer to tell him the time. When he gets to Wheaton, he tried to ask a couple named Gladys and Joseph Warbrick for the time. Joseph yelled the time to him and didn't approach the vehicle, so Derek drove off. Traveling back north, he returned to the town of Carlton and shot a man named Isaac Dixon, hitting him twice in the chest from close range as he was working on the edge of a farmer's field, and it's likely that Derek called him over to his vehicle before shooting him. And Derek knew a man named Jason Carey, a fellow scuba diver, who lived in the village of Wilton. There had been some issues with Derek and the fellow scuba divers, and it's possible Derek then targeted this man as part of his rampage. Derek pulled his car into Jason's driveway and began honking his horn. Jason had worked a night shift the night before, so he didn't get out of bed. Jason's wife took the time to put their dog away, and by the time she opened the door, Derek was backing out of the drive. Now, before he got to the carries. Derek had drove past a woman named Jennifer Jackson, and as he headed back into town, he drove past her again, this time shooting her with his shotgun, and then switched to his rifle and shot her twice in the head, killing her. Upon leaving the area, he unknowingly located Jennifer's husband, James, talking to a woman named Christine Hunter Hal. James had been walking to town to meet his wife, and he stopped to talk to Christine. Derek opened fire on both of them, and James was struck in the head and killed. Christine was struck in the back by a bullet, but would survive her gunshot wound. Another man named Gary Putham was shot and killed in a different farm field in nearby Gosforth. Gary was well known in the area as a past professional rugby player turned farmer. Witnesses said that Derek got out of his car to shoot Gary. Derek then traveled south again and began targeting motorists. At one point, he was parked along the side of the road and waved motorists to pass him. Sometime after this, he shot a man named James Clark in the head. The shooting occurred while James was driving, causing him to crash the car that he was driving. This was originally reported as a vehicle accident, but officers would soon discover it was another shooting victim. Meanwhile, the British police were struggling to properly command the situation. Due to the fact that this was an active shooting, command was supposed to pass, be passed to a tactical firearms commander, but the force incident manager had a better communication setup and was continuing to manage the situation, despite the tactical firearms manager trying to control their armed response vehicles. So in law enforcement and first responders in general, 
incident management is a really big and important deal for situations like this because you have so many different moving parts and we're going to talk about some of the other moving parts in the next episode that's all going on while this is happening but to have two people in charge makes things more difficult in this case because sometimes you're either duplicating tasks or certain tasks aren't getting done because you assume the other person is going to do it and it mentioned in there that even the tactical firearms commander didn't really have wherever he or she was located didn't have the communications capability to really take over so it's going to be one of many problems that police had on this day managing this incident and a police helicopter was dispatched to the scene during the early part of this incident but was having trouble flying in the area due to the dangerous terrain and low cloud cover and i mentioned this the middle of this county is these semi mountains i think they're 700 meter high so they're not you know massive mountains but it's definitely uneven rocky hilly terrain and that's the last place you want to be flying a helicopter through when you've got limited visibility so it's taking them a while to get helicopters and they were lucky enough to have these armed nuclear officers i mentioned them uh these are guys that are putting guys and gals that are put in charge of protecting the 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 nearby nuclear power plant so they're able to arrive to help search and they have two armored vehicles and the local police at this point had mustered up about 23 armed officers to assist in the search. Derek continued south along the coast and arrived in the village of Seascale around 11.27 a.m. As he had been sticking to smaller country roads to avoid most of the police vehicles, in this instance he came across a one-lane passage under a railroad bridge. A man in an SUV was on the other side of the one-lane passage and backed out and waved Derek and his taxi to come through. So this is picturing if you're familiar with any of these small town roads these country roads there's limited traffic in certain areas to the point that they're not going to build a railroad bridge that's two cars wide if it's very uncommon for two cars to need to pass under the bridge at any given time and so this is a situation where there's just enough room for one car to go at a time and i'm sure the guy in the the SUV on the other side, this this Harry Burger, he probably saw this car so as a taxi and well I'm not going to hold up the taxi by me going through or maybe Derek had already committed to the passage. However it is, Harry decides to be the nice guy and back out and wave Derek to come through this passage and as Derek comes through he pulls up to Harry uh, Berger and shoots him through the open window causing severe damage to his to his right arm so the thank you for being a, a decent person is that you get shot in your arm now three armed response vehicles were traveling in a convoy and passed through the area just minutes after Derek shot Harry and Harry's SUV had rolled in front of the passage so it had to be pushed out of the way by onlookers and not understanding the full gravity of the situation, several of the onlookers actually called 999 to complain that officers did not stop to render aid to Harry. So 
again, this is happening over a very large area. And so not everybody has an idea what's going on. So these people just come across this man who's been shot in a car and you know they have to be looking down the road and see these three police vehicles coming at them thinking, oh great, you know this, this guy needs help. And they just blow right by this, this guy that's injured. And they actually take the time to call 999 to complain that officers didn't stop, not realizing that that Harry's just one of many people who have been shot at this point. And Derek's main goal is to or is to shoot as many people as possible. And the police, their main goal is to put an end to it. So they can't stop and render aid at every every spot they they come across the victim. By 11.30, military helicopters were offered for help evacuating injured victims to trauma hospitals. And I mentioned the unique geography of the region. And one of the things that would make this difficult is you can't travel at speed through these mountains. You have to go the long way around. So any ambulances or anything, it's gonna take a while for somebody in a trauma situation to get to one of the bigger hospitals in the area. And so these military helicopters offered to help evacuate these, this growing number of victims, get them uh, through the rough terrain and, and to a trauma center as quickly as possible. And still in sea scale, Derek drove up to a man named Michael Pike. Michael was out on his bicycle and had been traveling in the same direction Derek was driving. Derek pulled up alongside him and shot at him twice. The first shot missed, but the second shot hit him in the neck, killing him. A short ways down the road, he pulled up next to a woman who was out delivering catalogs. Jane Robinson was likely called over to the car by Derek, again under the ruse that he was asking for the time of day. Jane leaned into the car and was killed instantly by a shotgun blast to the head and neck. At 11.33, the first armed response vehicles located Derek's car and radioed that they had located the shooter. They were traveling in the opposite direction of the vehicle and had to turn around. Due to road construction, this took longer than it should have, and they lost sight of the suspect vehicle. However, this sighting did allow more resources to be moved to the area, including the police helicopter. So at 11.34, Jackie Lewis was out for a walk in her village of Eskdale Valley when she was shot in the head with a 22 caliber round. Now this must have been a glancing blow that knocked her unconscious because she recovered eventually but had no recollection of being shot. And a single round of 22 caliber ammunition was found nearby, possibly indicating a weapon malfunction that might have saved Jackie's life. Now this wasn't mentioned, the, the malfunction, but one thing people don't realize if you're not big into firearms is that the more times you shoot a gun, the better chance you are you're going to have what's called a malfunction. And that's due to when the gunpowder ignites in the in the gun, it shoots burnt carbon everywhere inside that the the gun itself, down the barrel into the trigger mechanism, the extractor, everything like that gets a nice little coating of carbon every time a shot is fired. And if you're not maintaining your weapon, cleaning it, cleaning out that carbon after you shoot it, it, there's a very high chance that you're going to get a weapons malfunction and that can mean that two rounds feed, try to feed at the same time into the chamber. You can get um, issues with your firing pin, not 
firing. So the reason that I just thought maybe there's a malfunction because the main way to clear a malfunction in any weapon is just to remove the current round that's in there, cycle the weapon once so that it's ready to fire again, and then try to pull the trigger to see if it fires. So Derek may have shot Jackie Lewis. She loses consciousness, falls to the ground. There's no reason that he wouldn't stop and go back and shoot her. But if he's having a weapons malfunction, he's going to clear that rifle. And maybe he realizes it's not worth sticking around, especially because he had just lost those armed response vehicles. So that single round of live 22 makes me think that Jackie's alive because his weapon malfunctioned. Well, police had made a considerable effort to call all the major tourist sites in the area during the rampage, giving a shelter-in-place warning to them to minimize the number of people on the roads that day. This effort was mainly put forth by intelligence officers that did not work evenings or weekends, so this is actually a small break that likely saved a lot of lives. And at 11.40, further miscommunication occurred when the police helicopter radioed that it had arrived in the area of the last sighting of the suspect, but this was misinterpreted as they had located the suspect, and this led to many of the ARVs being sent to a singular location instead of continuing their sweep of the area. And this is actually something we see in a lot of uh, incidents, and uh, it was something that I was... Uh, upset me when I was in law enforcement. So we do things a little bit differently when we have a critical incident. Basically, in, in because all of our vehicles are armed vehicles in, in America, when there's a critical incident, we tend to do more of the roadblocks and, and what we call setting up a perimeter. So you lock that suspect into a box and you try to keep them inside that box. And that allows additional resources like helicopters and different things to search. Now, if you have a very good box built, you can send some officers inside to do some search patterns inside of that box. And I'm talking about, when I say a box, this thing could be three, four miles wide. This is vehicles stopping at major intersections or interchanges that they believe the suspect is going to drive through as opposed to just randomly driving around, which is what it sounds like the, the police were doing here. Well, what happens, unfortunately, is sometimes a vehicle that you believe to be the suspect vehicle is sighted, and everybody then swarms in, and some people even leave their perimeter spots or, or whatever it might be, to this potential suspect vehicle, and everybody just thinks this this is what where I need to be. And then they find out it's not actually the suspect vehicle. Well, then, you've given the suspect a chance to potentially get away or get outside of your perimeter in the box you built for them because everybody just gets laser focused on this one thing being being potentially a suspect and it sounds like that's what happened here with the helicopter saying hey i'm at the place where the vehicle's last sight you know seen and somebody interprets that to oh the helicopter sees the vehicle and now you have all of your limited resources rushing to an area where the suspect isn't. And like I said, it just, it's one of those things that it's a miscommunication. It takes training and, and practice to, to overcome. Now at 1150, a woman named Fiona Moretta, who was vacationing in the area, was out for a walk when Derek Bird pulled up next to her. She leaned into the car and was shot 
with a single shot from the 22 caliber rifle. And despite being shot in the face, she was able to run to the rear of the car. Witnesses would say it looked as if Derek was going to reverse and go after her, but then changed his mind and left in the direction he had been going. And by noon, over 40 armed officers were in the area looking for Derek. Additional officers from neighboring jurisdictions were sent to their borders to ensure that Derek did not get out of the Cumbria area and start another shooting spree in a new area. And this is what I just talked about before, is the last thing you want is for this suspect to get to a brand new area and start a whole second shooting spree because then you've got all of the issues with communication and victim needs and all that kind of stuff in one area and then now you have to shift the search and you're going to have more victims into this new area it just it complicates things so basically they did what i mentioned is go to your major border intersections park there and hope you know that at least if Derek comes through there, you can give chase, you can give an update, but you, you can't just let him slip into a whole other part of, in this case, England, without you know somebody seeing him, and now he's either in the wind completely or he's killing people in a whole new area. And Derek was now in the area of Boot, and he stopped at a business called Sims Travel, and Boot's actually pretty far in towards this national park, so he's left kind of the open ocean farm area on the west coast and he's actually heading into kind of the more mountainous wooded area of of this county and he was seen shooting his rifle at people at sims travel but all of his shots missed and the tourists in the area had taken heed of the shelter in place warning so this limited the number of targets derek had which as i said before that having those uh, information officers or whatever they referred to him as uh, able to, to make all these phone calls to these businesses saying you know don't let tourists just wander out in the streets we've got this guy running around shooting everybody those phone calls probably save lives because police weren't in the area boot yet and there were a couple people out but Derek had to take some less than ideal shots and thankfully they missed and a few minutes later, he came across a family walking towards a train station. He opened fire on them, and again he missed. And only 100 meters later, he came across a man named Reginald Miller, and he pointed his rifle at Reginald but didn't fire. And this is again where I think maybe he's had a malfunctioning weapon at this point, where it's, it's at least not working as he would like it to. And he had no problem shooting at this family that had kids in it so i don't know or anybody else so far so i don't know why he would point his rifle at somebody and not fire unless again unless he had a, another malfunction of the rifle at this point and further down this road Derek came across two men nathan jones and philip moore who had been camping the previous evening Derek stopped his car and aimed his rifle at nathan and pulled the trigger the bullet hit him in the face but he survived a few minutes later, Derek arrived at the vehicle of Samantha Christie and Craig Ross. They had stopped their car and Samantha got out to take a picture. Derek pulled up next to them and asked Samantha if she was having a nice day before he shot her in the face. Craig started to get out of his vehicle and Derek pointed his rifle at him and told him to leave. Craig drove off and Derek shot into the rear windshield of Craig's car but did not hit Craig. Craig would drive down the road and see two cyclists on the road 
as he was on his way to get help for Samantha. Craig would warn these cyclists about the taxi, and not long after, Derek drove by the cyclists and shot at them but missed. And after missing these cyclists, Derek briefly lost control of his taxi, causing it to crash into a dry stone wall. The resulting damage flattened his front passenger side tire. And he drove his damaged vehicle off the main road and onto a side road before the tire fell off the car completely and he was forced to abandon his vehicle. It was now 12.15 and two people on vacation, unaware of the shooting spree and that Derek had just killed several people, stopped to ask if he needed assistance. He declined their offer and grabbed the rifle out of his car. He walked off into a nearby woods and killed himself with a single fatal gunshot wound to the head. And that's going to end the narrative section. And as I said, I'm roughly 50 minutes in right now, and I haven't even really gotten to a lot of the analysis from the report, uh, reasons why there was some uh, issues with the response times and and capabilities that day. So this is why I decided to make this a two-part episode. And in the next episode, we'll cover some of the findings from the after-incident reports, and we'll analyze both the suspect and police actions that day. Obviously, a lot of people were going to want to know why Derek did what he did. We mentioned some of the tax stuff. We mentioned some anger about other taxi drivers. Um, So we'll get a little bit more into his history. And as I said, I'll break down a lot of the of the police response and how it kind of differs from how we would do things in America, how they, this actually changed some things for the for the British police, this, this incident did. And then likely since there'll be some more time because it'll be kind of a shorter episode, we'll talk about some of the, uh, the stuff I have upcoming for uh, CrimeCon and for the podcast in general. So that'll be episode 51. Uh, we'll get to that on the next episode. So thank you guys for listening. Uh, stay tuned for you, the future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.